Good evening. Welcome to the mine. Glad you're here. Especially because this is going to be it for a couple of weeks. Um, we are off next Tuesday, the 14th, and we are off the following Tuesday, the 21st. We come back on the 28th. Okay, so don't forget that. We're off for two weeks because this coincides with the Chandler School District spring break. All the kids' programs are shut down for two weeks, and so we shut down too. All right? So next Tuesday, the 14th, and the following Tuesday, the 21st, I won't be here. If you want to come, great. I won't be here. Okay? Um, the other cool thing, and it's a little bit dark, so you can't see it, but some of you might have seen the 31-ton stone that was delivered today yeah. out here. No. This thing's huge. There's a 31-ton stone sitting out there that is the cornerstone of the new building. Oh, yeah. Wow. And it's not actually sitting in the exact place it's going to be. They're going to have to move it a little bit, but they've got to pour the foundation and then put the stone in. It's going to be a really cool part of the of the new building. The new building is going to like angle this way. So like Willis is coming down this way. And so the corner of Willis and Ama School, the new building is going to actually like angle this way, if you will. I mean, it's not going to totally look like that. And the cornerstone is going to be like here and that part of the building. This is going to be the new, like there's going to be the cafe, the bookstore. Now this is going to be the entrance into the new building. And of course, then the 1200 seat auditorium is going to be here. Uh, What's going to be neat about this cornerstone is it, half of it's going to be outside the building, half of it's going to be inside a new building, and there's going to be a waterfall that goes down over it. Wow. And then there's going to be some lounge area here where there's going to be some couches and stuff so people can just hang out here with coffee, meet people here before or after a service, whatever. It's really cool. Ten more months, guys. Ten more months. All right? Wow. So... Yeah, they actually, they picked out the stone from, you know, up north on a mountain, and they literally do just cut it off and plop it on there and bring it down. That's pretty cool, pretty cool. It's got character, too. It's it's, uh, it's really cool. So anyway, uh, like I said, you won't be able to see it tonight, but, uh, you know, maybe Sunday you come back, uh, you know, you can get up a little bit. They've got it roped off, obviously. They don't want kids or anything climbing on the thing. <laughs> but you can get pretty close to it, and uh, like I said, they'll have to move it a, a few feet uh, to get it positioned, but they've got to pour the foundation, and that's sort of the next step, is you're, you're going to be seeing, you know, some of the foundation for the new building being poured, too, so pretty cool. Then, I don't know how many of you know this, but that's the first phase. The neat thing about this building project is the second phase is... Once we fill up that 1,200-seat auditorium, we can expand to 2,500 without building anything else um, and go up to 2,500 seats at one time wow. in the building. Uh, so that's pretty cool. So anyway, Revelation, chapter 3, we're looking at the church <coughs> at Laodicea, beginning at verse 14. And this was sort of neat that this worked out this way, and I didn't plan it this way, because I'm not smart enough to plan it this way, that we sort of ended tonight before the break with the last message to the last church, and then we'll pick it up in chapter 4 in a couple weeks where we sort of switch gears and we move from the perspective of earth to the perspective of heaven, because one of the things we're going to learn in chapter 4 is that everything that takes place after this in chapter 3 
We really need heaven's perspective in order to see the events of earth the way they need to be seen. And that's why in chapter 4, John is taken up into heaven, and you begin to see what is happening here from God's perspective rather than from an earthly perspective, which is totally going to put a different perspective on everything. And that's something we need to keep in mind, and I'll remind you about that when we get into chapter 4 in a couple weeks on the 28th. But today is the last message, tonight is the last message to the last church, and the thing that makes this message unique is if you've been here for a couple weeks and you've been studying it with us, you remember that in each of Christ's former messages to the churches, he always had something good to say, and then he always had a uh, something of correction to say to each church. There was a commendation and there was a correction. This is the only church out of the seven where Jesus has nothing good to say about the church, which is sort of sad. Let's begin by looking at the first verse then where Jesus says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. A couple of things there. One of the problems at Laodicea, I believe, is even found in the name. The name means people rule rather than God rule. You know, Laodicea is made up of two words. Leo, or Laos, where we get the country Laos from, which just means people. And then Decea in Greek, which means rule. And it literally means the people rule. And part of the problem in this church was that the people were running things rather than letting God run things. And boy, we have to be careful of that. That still happens today. And that's where some churches get into problems because people come to the church with their own agenda. People come and join a church and they try to push their agenda through of what they want to see the church do instead of deferring to what Christ wants and what direction Christ wants the church to go. And that message is for everybody, from the top down. But we all have to take our cue from the head of the church. And the head of the church is Christ. He is the one to be in charge. He's the one to set the agenda. He's the one that's supposed to lead us as a church. And, and if we're following, and we're good followers, and we're just looking for his direction, and we're following him, we're going to be okay. But once we begin to make up the rules, and once we begin to set our own agenda, and once we begin as a people to say, I think this is what we need to do, and we're really not sure that's where God wants us to go, we're going to be in trouble. And I think that's part of what was happening in Laodicea. You also notice that Jesus refers to himself as the Amen. This word in the original language simply speaks of certainty and reliability. It's like in church, whenever the pastor says something good and somebody says, Amen. They're simply, in a sense, saying, that's right, that's that's certain, that's reliable. What, what I agree with him. That's reliable. And Jesus here is reminding the church at Laodicea, You may not like what I'm about to tell you, but it's reliable. It is certain. And what I'm about to tell you is true because I am the amen. What I am about to say is very reliable and it is very, very certain. 
That's why he goes on and really even expands this concept of the amen by reminding us that he is also the faithful and true witness. Again, he's speaking about the sincerity and the genuineness of his character and of all that he's going to do and say here, which is really in contrast with this church. Because what this church's problem is, is that they're like some other churches we've looked at, it's all about what's on the surface and not really what is substance. It's about what's what's surface and not really what is real. And Jesus is here saying, I'm real, I'm faithful, I'm true. How faithful and true are you, church at Laodicea? Now, the problem is that we're going to see they thought they were very faithful and true, just like some other churches who had a reputation for being alive and being all that God wanted them to be. But God says, you're, you're not anywhere near what you need to be. And so he's sort of reminding them of all this. He's emphasizing the accuracy and the trustworthiness of what he's about to say. And that's why, again, he introduces himself as the amen, the faithful, and the true witness. Now, the other thing I wanted to point out is this. You'll also notice he refers to himself as the originator of God's creation. Now, we know that the Bible teaches that all three persons of the Trinity were involved in the creation. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They all had different sort of roles, just like they do today. God the Father has a certain role. God the Son has a certain role. God the Spirit has a certain role. They are equal. They are one, but they have different roles to play within the Godhead. But the point I want to make is, again, going back to this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this book, like no other, glorifies him and sets him up as the glorified Christ and reminds people that Jesus Christ is God of very God, King of kings, Lord of lords. He is the originating agent of creation, if you will. And... If you just keep your finger there in Revelation chapter 3, we're going to come right back. I'd like to take you to a great passage in the book of Colossians that reminds us about his role in creation and even his role in the universe is in Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. And just sort of a side note here that doesn't have anything to do with anything we're talking about in Revelation, but it's something sort of cool that I wanted to throw out to you tonight. And you'll probably be hearing me more say, say more about this at some point, uh, because we're going to be doing probably at least a couple-week series on uh, debunking, if you will, the Da Vinci Code movie and the Da Vinci Code book that's coming out. And one of the pieces of that is getting people to see that what we believe about Christ and all of that is traced right back to the time of Christ. It was not invented by the Catholic Church in 300, you know, something, 25 at the Council of Nicaea. In fact, just throwing this out real quickly, because I don't want to get into it tonight. It's not what we're here about. But for any of you that have read the Da Vinci Code, or if you're even thinking about it, I would tell you, don't bother. To me, it's a waste of time. It is very of course, anti-Christ, first of all. It is very anti-Catholic, and it is very (laughs) anti-Jewish. And I'm like, we live in such a politically correct world, how does that book become the number one bestseller? You know, it is like the most politically incorrect book. But, you know, that's the way Satan works, and that's the deception of the evil one. But it's, uh, it's that way. 
And, and one of the premises of the book is that what we know about Jesus Christ and what we have been duped to believe about Jesus Christ was invented by the Catholic Church in around 325 A.D. at the Council of Nicaea. Now, the reason I bring that up tonight is because there are certain passages of Scripture in the Bible that we call creeds. We know they are creeds because of their literary style. We know they are creeds because they, of their language that is used that implies that these were creeds that were oral traditions passed on from the very early eyewitnesses who were with Christ that were passed on before the Bible began to be written. And what we're going to look at tonight is one of those creeds that was very, very, very early tradition that can be traced back to the very time that Christ was here on earth, soon after he rose from the dead, soon after he ascended. It can be traced back that far before all this started to be wrote down. In fact, in your Bible, this passage may be inset, or it may be in different print, or something like that, to even show you that. Now, it may not be. But anyway, let's begin, and that's all I'll say about that, and we'll go on, okay? But notice that this passage talks a lot about Christ and his glory. He says, beginning in chapter 1, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Well, that's the originator of God's creation, what he talked about in Revelation. For all things in heaven and on earth were created by him, all things, whether invisible or visible, whether thrones or dominions, whether principalities or powers, all things were created through him, and then notice this very important phrase, and for him. He himself is before all things, and all things are even held together. Literally, the word means in the original, held together, sustained. In other words, what it's saying is not only did Jesus create the universe, but without the sustaining power of Jesus Christ, it would blow apart. That Jesus Christ literally keeps the ocean tides where they need to be, keeps the rotation of the earth where it needs to be, because if you've ever studied any of this, you realize that where we are on this planet to, to be able to inhabit this planet and to keep us alive, that if the earth tilted just a little bit one way or a little bit another way, we'd die. And so the Bible says, not only did Jesus create this, but Jesus keeps it going. The very breath that we breathe, the very axis that the earth is on, the, the very way that God has designed all this, it is held together by the power of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ just decided to let it go, it'd be gone. It, we just all disintegrate and vaporize, if you will. And that's what it means in verse 17. He is the head of the body, the church, which again, going back to Revelation chapter 3, well, he wasn't the head of the church at Laodicea. They were ruling the church rather than allowing the head to lead the church, as well as the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that he himself may become first in all things. And I'll just stop there. But anyway, the creed goes through verse 20, actually, but the point I wanted to make is just this is a great passage that backs up, supports what G John is saying here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, which is that Jesus Christ is the very originator of God's crea creation. And not just the originator, he's the one who keeps it together. He's the one that holds it together. He's the one that sustains it all and keeps it from just you know, blowing apart, all right? It is his power that does this every day. And uh, just, you know, a really cool passage of scripture and one that really, again, exalts Christ and lifts him up and glorifies him 
as the, the Lamb of God and the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, if you go back to Revelation chapter 3, I just want to comment on verses 15 and 16, and then I'm going to stop for a moment. This is probably the most familiar part of this message to the church at Laodicea, because it's the most unique. You'll notice what it says to the church. He says, I know your deeds. And of course, we know God is all-knowing. He knows everything that's going on in the church. He knows everything that's going on in our lives. He knows he's the perfect diagnoser, if you will. Is that a word, diagnoser? He's the perfect diagnoser of what the church needs to do. And the neat thing is he's the perfect diagnoser in our lives. He knows exactly, you know, it's frustrating when you and I are sick and we go to a doctor or somebody or even a counselor or whatever, and, and they just, I don't know, you know. It's so neat to know that we have a God up there who can put his finger right on the problem. And boom, there it is. There, that's, that's what you need. That's the cure. Here, here's the problem. Here's the cure. This is, I mean, Jesus Christ is that. He's been that throughout these all these messages to the seven churches. He's told them at, at, at a time what they needed to correct and how to correct it. And he does the same thing here. But first of all, notice, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, again, remember that Jesus gives a message to each church that not only is relevant and applicable to the church down through history, but it also does have a flavor locally of something that they, they knew better than even we knew, but how we can apply it to our lives. And bear with me why I'm building this up. The church, no, I don't want to say that, the city of Laodicea had everything going for it. In fact, we're going to see this a little bit later on. Everything going for it except one thing. They didn't have good water. Their water stunk. And so they had to, in a sense, pipe their water in from two places. There was a town near them called Hierapolis, and Hierapolis had this great hot water that they piped in to Laodicea so that they could have hot water. And then the town Colossae, where we just read the book of Colossians, that's where the Colossians lived in the town of Colossae. They had a great cold water system in their town. So what the Laodiceans did was they piped the hot water from Hierapolis and the cold water from Colossae, and so you can remember this, remember Hierapolis, H, hot, Colossae, C, cold. That's how you can differentiate that, okay, for this test coming up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and they piped it into Laodicea. Now what Jesus here is then, he's using that to say this. He says, I wish you were hot. I wish you were hot in this sense. The hot water that they got from Hierapolis and Laodicea was used for medicinal purposes. It was used for healing. It was used to make people feel better. You know, there's times where a nice hot water, hot bath, hot compress, whatever, it's used a lot of times to provide healing and medicinal, you know, purposes. And what Jesus is saying is, I wish you were hot. I wish you were hot in the spiritual sense, that you were providing some kind of spiritual healing for people when they came in contact with your ministry. But we know that they didn't because they were lukewarm. The cold water that was piped in from Colossae was used for spiritual refreshment. There's nothing like when you and I are thirsty, and especially out here in the desert, to get a good cold drink of cold water. 
And what Jesus here is saying is, when he says, I wish you were hot or cold, he's simply saying, I wish in your church that you were providing, just like physically, the waters of Hierapolis and Colossae were providing the people of Laodicea with spiritual refreshment, or excuse me, physical refreshment and physical healing. I wish that you people in the church at Laodicea were providing people with spiritual healing and spiritual refreshment. The problem was, as Jesus says here, they weren't. They were lukewarm. They were neither hot nor cold. They weren't refreshing anybody, and they weren't providing healing for anybody. And because of that, Jesus says, you have got to the point where I'm about ready to spew you out of my mouth and vomit you. Because it just reminds us, just as we've already seen, that Jesus gives his church time to repent, time to turn around, but there comes a point where God knows they're just not going to respond. And the only response is, I'm going to come and I'm going to snuff out your candlestick. It doesn't mean that they're going to, you know, it just means that they're going to lose the capacity that Jesus meant for them to have as a church to bear light in the community in which he has placed them. And just as we've seen in the other churches when Jesus says, I'm going to come and I'm going to blow out your candlestick. Because the candlestick represents the church. And the church, you and I are to bear light. Jesus says we are to be the light of the world. He was the light of the world. He's passed that responsibility on to us. We are to be the light of the world. And Jesus here is simply saying, if you don't soon get your act together and begin to, re- to provide spiritual refreshment and spiritual healing to the people of Laodicea, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm, you're tepid. You're, you're not good for anything, you know. It's that in-between water that not doesn't really refresh you and doesn't really provide any kind of healing either, all right? Now, I'm going to stop there because, yeah, verse 16, comments or questions? Yes. Okay, um, first, just generally how he applies or, or the comments are, are directed at a specific church, right? It, it, it's kind of... Like everyone in the church is doing that, when in fact there'll probably be all kinds of people at different levels, right? There probably are some hot people and some cold, but they're obviously not commanding a role or having a commanding role in that church, right? And and I, I think that's probably true at every church, right? So why is it that in, in, instead of spitting out that church? changes the, the guard, so to speak. Well, I do believe, as, as we've studied before, there's usually a faithful remnant in every church, like you said. The, the predominant group of people in the church may be headed the wrong way, and there may be a few faithful ones at the church. To answer your question, I really can't, because to me, I'm crossing over into God's being able to, in his wisdom, to judge when does that church get to the point, and again, because he's the head, he's the only one that really knows, when does that local church get to the point where it is went beyond where any repair, in a sense, can be done, and where it's just better to just sort of, and I hate to use these terms, but to blow it up and just start all over again. And I think there's even a lot of Christians who struggle with that, maybe even in the churches that they find themselves in, where they're in a church... It's not really, in their mind, really out there doing what they should be doing for God. 
And one of the questions that they'll ask me and other people is, how long should I stay at that kind of a church? And my answer to them is, you know, not to be a cop-out, but you and God have to make that decision. I will tell you, I had to make that decision in my life. I grew up in a church, a local church, that when I was a child, it was faithful to God. By the time I got to be a teenager, it had become unfaithful to God, as a whole church. Now again, there were good people in the church, but as a whole, the church had become unfaithful to God and to His Word. And I had to make a determination there, like I think everybody does. Am I going to stay, and am I going to try to fight? Am I going to try to you know, get things back on track? Or under God's direction, is it just better that I leave and go to another church and find myself another church that's really doing it right and doing it the way it should be doing? And again, I don't feel like I can answer that for anybody, but I do think that there comes a point where God, if you're in a church that, for instance, I'll just use this as a they don't preach the Bible anymore. I mean, you've got to make a determination, am I going to stay at that church that doesn't open up the Bible anymore on Sunday? And... Am I going to stay there and try to be supportive and maybe even try to, to get them to speak about the Bible more and try to be an agent of change to turn that around? Or do I feel like I've tried to do that and I'm just beating my head against the wall and it just would be better if I left and sort of let them go down the path that they want to go and I'll go to a church that does open the Bible and preach the Bible? And uh, I hope that helps to answer that. Maybe it doesn't. Well, I just It confirms it's a very difficult yeah, yeah, it really is, and I guess that's why I'm glad God is the head of His church because He's the one that's ultimately going to say, as He would say here, we know how patient Jesus is, we know how merciful, we know how long suffering is. So when Jesus gets to the point, because to be honest with you, Jesus is a lot more long suffering, patient, and merciful than any human being I've ever met is. So when Jesus gets to the point where He says. Uh, that's it, it must be pretty bad. It must be pretty bad for him to get to the point where he's saying, I'm going to have to spew you out of my mouth. I, I can no longer tolerate you being there because it's just not working anymore. You know, And I think only God knows when that sort of that line is crossed. Yeah. yeah. I just want to comment on that. I think it's difficult for us to understand that. It's just though I think a lot of what the messages to the to the churches are can be used on how you should pattern your Christian life also. Oh, oh exactly. So there's oh, exactly. You know, basically, you know, be hot or cold, don't be lukewarm about your faith. Oh exactly. Right? And and I mean but I mean does that specifically mean that if you are lukewarm <coughs> Christ's gonna spit you out too? Well, I think you. I think I think this. I think if you're lukewarm in your, and that's exact. You're exactly right. That's where I would say to us the message again, and how relevant it is. The message to you and I tonight is: let's be hot and cold. Let's be a life that is spiritually refreshing on one hand and spiritually healing on another. That God can truly use to touch other people's lives in a positive way. If I become lukewarm in my Christian life, there's going to come a point where. God is not able to use my life to really positively, spiritually impact anybody else's life. 
Now, when that point comes, again, only God knows. But yeah, that's, that's a true statement. That's why I've got to be careful not to become lukewarm. Because if I become lukewarm and I stay lukewarm long enough, God, because the Bible teaches we're all instruments of God. And, and part of being an instrument of God is being someone that God can, can use and want to use and regularly you know, uses to make an impact for him in this world in which we live. A lukewarm believer is not going to be somebody that, that you know, is going to make a great impact. And again, our goal should be in this life, because we only have one life to live, that we want to make the biggest splash, if you will, that we can for God while we're here. Uh, I know I've been reminded of my mortality the last couple days, because do you realize that two famous people have died that were my age? 44 years of age. Kirby Puckett, the baseball player, was 44, and Dana um, Reeves Reeves was 44. And I'm like, okay, God, what are you trying to tell me? I'm 44. You know, two people, 44. We don't know how long we've got, but the time that we do have, as we've talked about before, let's seize those opportunities. Let's be hot. Let's be cold. Um, let's Let's not be lukewarm. Now, I will say this. I'm sorry, Christian. To follow up on that real quick. I think the best way we prevent from being lukewarm is we keep pushing ourselves spiritually. We keep applying, as Ron talked about a couple weeks ago, the disciplines of the Christian life and incorporating those spiritual disciplines of our relationship to the Word and our prayer life and of meeting with other Christians and being encouraged in that way and taking advantage of all the spiritual resources that God has out there for us. In the book of Hebrews... The Bible basically tells us there that the reason why those believers became lukewarm is because they, they, they had no spiritual push anymore. The word in the original was dull. It literally means no push. It means they got complacent. They got spiritually lazy. Uh, they began to take things for granted, take their faith for granted, take their Savior for granted, take their Bible for granted, take their church for granted. I mean, go on and on. And there was just no push. And you, and we've talked about this before. It takes push to make progress in the Christian life because, like there, you guys would all be on a human level perfectly justified in having stayed home tonight and just relaxed, you know, just kicking your feet up and just laying on the couch and just taking it easy for a couple hours. But you push yourself to come here, and because of that push, hopefully God is working in your life through His Word, and you are growing in your relationship with Him. You're growing in your understanding of God's word, and because of you continuing to push yourself when the flesh is saying, I'll just stay home, or don't go to church today, or don't open your Bible today, and don't don't pray today, you continue to push yourself, and that's the best remedy against becoming lukewarm. But excellent insight. Yeah, Christian. Does, does the term hot and cold only refer to spiritual refreshment and spiritual healing? I remember a number of years back, I heard a sermon on this verse, and the, and the pastor basically said that it's better to be, he, he talked about cold being, it's better to not even <coughs> talk about your faith and to basically be a non-Christian than to be a, a waffling Christian. And that's the way he interpreted it. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I, I had heard the same thing in another preaching. Where cold was, you were not following, you were not a Christian, you were, you were shut down and hot was, you were moving in the right direction, you were pushing. And it was kind of interesting because it almost appeared to me after I heard that sermon that, okay, lukewarm is worse than cold. They're doing nothing, yeah. 
which is doing nothing for the Lord or you know, not pushing yeah. at all. So it, it didn't feel right. So this well, is, and based upon what Jesus says in verse 16 when he says, I wish you were either cold or hot. And again, my interpretation is based again on the water supply and what those waters supplied. And I think when Jesus says, I wish you were this or I wish you were that, I just don't wish you were in the middle. Right. Because my understanding, again, comparing Scripture with Scripture, and if you compare all this together, you find out that actually the worst possible witness for Christ is the person who claims to be a believer and may be, but is a cold believer, if you will. Right. Well, to me, I would rank the cold believer even worse than the lukewarm. Because the cold believer is out there saying, I'm a Christian. But then they live such a carnal, worldly life that they actually do more damage. Right. In fact, that's why Paul says that they, the true enemies of the cross of Christ, are not unbelievers. Are not, now think about this, are not Satanists. Are not people involved in all kinds of... He says, the enemies of the cross of Christ are those people who claim to be Christians and maybe even are, but who live such a sloppy Christian life. Because those are the ones that bring reproach. Those are the ones that the world points a finger at and say, they're a bunch of hypocrites, you know, or they're, look at that. Why do I want to, you know, live like that? They're, they're talking about how God has made such a difference in their life. Well, what difference has he made? They're not acting any different than they did before they so-called became a Christian. They're the ones that do the most damage to me to the cause of Christ and that's why I guess I landed on this interpretation of I believe we should be spiritually refreshing and or spiritually healing but the middle is that that lukewarm that's not good for nothing but I have heard those too yeah I have definitely heard that take on it yeah well yours makes more sense because I mean why would God hate somebody lukewarm versus somebody well, it didn't make sense before. It does now. Thank you. Well, I'm <laughs> glad I made sense. Seeing no, that Revelations chapter 3 when they were talking about that? Or was that just a different context of the you know, analogy of hot and cold? Because it sounds like it's out of context compared to what he, Jesus is referring to in, in this passage, right? It may, but I have heard other messages on this passage that did use the code as as being someone who just had no care at all in a sense yeah i have heard that so it would seem odd then that jesus would say i wish you were right a totally negative non-existent non-caring person yeah exactly why would he wish for that that just doesn't seem to have any context there or that he would be more upset with the lukewarm i think it's when he's cold i don't know i mean the way I grew up understanding the verse was um, the hot being you're on fire for Christ and the cold meaning you're you're cold about Christ, you're you're not a believer, whatever. And, the, and I think the reason the lukewarm is worse is because for the reason you're saying, if you say you're a Christian but you don't act like it, you're worse than somebody who's not a Christian at all. Oh, I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah so exactly. That's, that's the way yeah. I see yeah. It. And again, like I said. The only reason I landed on the interpretation of this that I did was because, again, I think Jesus, again, as we've seen before, like with Sardis and other cities, he uses what they were familiar with to paint a really vivid picture of what he intended. And it was very clear to them that, oh, we got our hot water from Hierapolis that provided spiritual healing for many in this city, and we get the cold water from Colossae that provides refreshment. 
And so that's why I landed on that. But I'm, you know, I'm not saying it mine is the right one or the only one. It you know it could be yeah. <coughs> Mary Alice. I just want to know what does spit you out vomit mean to you? What it, what is it sounds like it's an act. What in fact is is God referring to you that spit you out? Well, again, the, the part that I landed on Mary Alice was that that he simply means that the, the church will not exist as a light in the community anymore. This is, in all the other six churches, he refers to that. He'll say, I, I'm, I'm going to, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and put your lampstand out. He doesn't say that here in this passage of scripture. And because he's using the terminology of hot and cold and lukewarm and using that whole mindset Instead of saying, I'm going to come and put out your lamp, he says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. It sort of goes along with the language and whatever that he's using at that point. So I'm just interpreting it as, again, that he's going to put out the light of the church. And again, if you all remember, this church doesn't exist anymore. Uh, If you go to Laodicea, modern-day Laodicea, you will find that there is no church of Jesus Christ there in that town. It, it was gone a long time ago. So, but, yeah. Uh, I guess I heard it a little bit differently in terms of uh, hot and cold being very passionate feelings and lukewarm being very apathetic feelings about mm-hmm. things and with the understanding that, he, uh, you know, Christ can use those that are that are hot for him in pursuit of him. And, but those that are cold is someone who... They at least have a passion about what they believe, and and that's kind of a searching mode. And those are people that can still be reached, but mm-hmm. it's those that are lukewarm about things that, uh, right? You know, the apathy they, they could care less. You know, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. And you know what? Everything is. You know, again, you have to come up with your own conclusion as you study the word. You know, that's for sure. No, I was no. just going to agree with this gentleman here. I'm sorry, I don't know your name, but um, yeah, I don't think God would, would wish for anybody to be cold. So I kind of that right. kind of did it for me too. Okay, well let's move on. I want you to see the self-sufficiency and pride that again, if you if you study the city of Laodicea, you find out that the city itself was a very prideful, self-sufficient city. Again, the only thing they lacked in this city was water. They had everything. And so you come down then to verse 17, and here's part of the problem. This pride and self-sufficiency that had crept into the culture now had crept into the church. Because Jesus says in verse 17, You say, we're rich. We've acquired great wealth. And notice this, we don't need anything. Basically, they're saying, Jesus, we don't need you. We don't even need you. We've got everything we need. We are totally self-sufficient. But notice what Jesus says. Because of this, you do not realize that actually, in reality, spiritually, you are wretched, you are pitiful, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. Now, here it is. They had no idea of their true spiritual condition. Because they were spiritually blind. They needed, like we need, the illumination of the Holy Spirit so they could see their condition accurately. They had been so lifted up in pride and self-sufficiency that they had gotten to the point where they said, we've got everything we need. We can just, 
you know, kick back and we can just be at ease. And Jesus is saying, don't you realize how needy you are? You are a needy people. And it just reminds us that again, and we've talked about this before, no matter how long I've known the Lord, no matter how long I've been saved, no matter how long I have walked with Him, I need Him desperately every day. I cannot get to the point in my Christian life where I put myself on cruise control and just slide for home. I need to continue to push. I need to acknowledge I need Him. I need to acknowledge that that I need to depend upon Him, and it is through my dependence upon Him that I'll be able to rise to the level that He wants me to rise to. In John 15, when he talked about abiding in him, he says, remember guys, you can't be fruitful unless you have me, because without me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. And so Jesus says, you need me. You need to acknowledge your need of me. They did not, they had gotten to a point where they stopped acknowledging their need of God. They didn't need him anymore. In other words, the church, get this, the church was operating without God. That's pretty scary. And you think about how many churches in the world today operate, you know, the machinery's all in place, okay? The machinery's all in place. The programs are there. The people are there to man the programs. But how much is done in that local church energized truly by power of God rather than man doing it type of thing? It's something that all of us have to constantly check on. It's something I have to constantly check on, as I've shared with you before. No matter how many messages I've shared, no matter how many times I speak God's Word, no matter how many lessons I teach, I need Jesus Christ as desperately today as I did when I started speaking 30 years ago. I, you don't get to a point where you don't need Him. And these people had gotten to a point because of how rich in so many things the city of Laodicea was, and that that pride and self-sufficiency then creeped into the church, that the church began to say, we don't need anything. And we're going to see then where that put Jesus. Now just hang on there. with. So notice then what Jesus says. You need to take the blinders off and see yourselves for what you really are. So he says in verse 18, take my advice. And buy gold from me refined by fire so you can become rich. Buy from me white clothing so you can be clothed and your shameless nakedness will not be exposed. And buy salve to put on your eyes. Now, a couple of things there. Jesus is simply saying, you need to recognize your need of me. Laodicea was known for its gold. They had a lot of gold and probably a lot of money in that church. But Jesus says, uh-uh, but you need gold refined by me. And then he says... You don't realize you're naked. You think you're fully clothed. And I'm telling you, if you just took the if you took the, the spiritual blinders off and saw yourself what you realize, you're you're naked. And it reminds me of the story way back in the book of Genesis, where just like Adam and Eve tried to clothe themselves and it didn't work, that's what these people were trying to do. They were trying to clothe themselves, and God had to come along even then and said, Those fig leaves don't cut it, folks. I need to provide a covering for you. Because only a covering provided by God is sufficient, you see. And these people were trying to provide their own covering. And they needed Christ in their life. And then the ISAB, again, going back to the local thing, Laodicea was known for this medical school that it had there. And the primary thing that this medical school was known for and produced was this eye powder called Virgian powder that was used as to, to, to 
create a paste that people would put on their eyes to like help their eyes feel better. And so again, Jesus is using something that would be so familiar to them, and he's saying, you've got this great eye salve that you guys in Laodicea are known for, but you don't realize you need my eye salve so that you can be spiritually unblinded and so that you can truly see yourselves for what you really are. I mean, it's so sobering to say to see there that he says, you've got to put on this eye salve that I give you so that you can see. I think to myself, wow, we need to be so careful that we don't become spiritually insensitive to our own spiritual condition and that we allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate us and to show us where we are spiritually with the Lord. And part of that is, is coming before his word like we do every Tuesday night and saying, God, please show me what you need to show me in my life so that I can, you know, I can correct some things and do some, some tweaking and, you know, come in for that spiritual oil change every 3,000 miles and, and get that spiritual tune-up that I need to get so that I can keep on going and, and, and keep making an impact for you in this world in which, I, in which you live. Wow, it's just so sad. To, and you know what? I hate to say this, but I think a lot of times, especially in America, that the church today in America is a lot like Laodicea in that we've got a lot of great things going for us that churches around the world don't have because we're so much more wealthy and affluent than most of the other people around the world. And sometimes I wonder if all that we have and all that we have at our disposal doesn't make us a little spiritually lethargic that we would be a little bit more on our knees and a little bit more into the Word and maybe have a little bit more push if things weren't so right there for us all the time, that, that you know things were just right there. And, and I see that with the Laodiceans, where they had everything this world could offer them, but Jesus is saying, but the most important thing, you don't have anymore. You've, you've kicked me out of my church, because let's go on and see this amazing verse, and then we're going to go back. I'm going to go back to verse 19 a moment, but notice, he says, all those I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent, and then notice this unbelievable verse that we all probably know and are familiar with, that's taken from this passage. Listen, I am standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into his home and share a meal with him and he with me. Now again, a lot of people use this verse, in evangelism, talking about Jesus Christ knocking on the door of our heart. I'm not saying that that's an incorrect application, but I think the most correct interpretation, if again we interpret scripture based upon its context, is that the context is telling us very clearly here that what's going on is that Jesus Christ has been kicked out of his church. And he's knocking on the door of the church, wanting somebody in the church to let him, the head of the church, back in to his own church. I mean, think about that. The, the head of the church and the one who created the church isn't actually in the church anymore. That the people have now taken over the church. The people are now ruling the church. And at some point in the history of this church... I'm sure they didn't consciously do it. They didn't go up to Jesus and say, well, Jesus, we don't want you to be the head of the church anymore, so just get lost. I'm sure that didn't happen. But over a period of time, through their pride and through their self-sufficiency, they got to a point 
where basically they didn't need Jesus. They could handle things on their own. And this sort of ties in exactly with Pastor Lynn's message from Sunday where we can get to a point like Moses where we fire God and say, God, I don't need you. I can take care of things on my own and I can, I can do this on my own. I don't need you. And that's exactly what was happening here with the church at Laodicea. Now, I, I just want to make this comment and then I'm, I'm going to stop for a moment. You also see in this passage of Scripture the unbelievable love the unbelievable condescension that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is willing to stand outside of his church and knock and ask somebody to let him in. I mean, he could just, boom. He, he could just destroy the whole thing. And, and here's Jesus, the glorified Christ, who's standing outside of his church as a perfect gentleman, just knocking on the door, hoping that at some point, before it's too late, somebody inside the church at Laodicea is going to realize, guess what? Jesus is no longer at the center of this church. We have, like the church at Ephesus, we've left our first love. We've actually, whether we realize it or not, Jesus is no longer the center of what we're doing around here. We are. We have taken over this church and we've got to bring Jesus back and make him the very center of all that we do. And let me just say this, and then I promise I'll shut up. As great as Cornerstone's gone in its first ten years of life, if this church or any church begins to let Jesus not be the center of all that we do here, guys, we're all going down like the Titanic. And, and you and I all know of churches that we could give testimony to. Just like the church I shared that I left when I was a teenager that forgot to keep Jesus Christ at the very center of all that the church did. And because of that, the church's ministry just started to go down. Now again, Jesus didn't maybe literally spew that church out of his mouth or he didn't kill anybody in the church or destroy it in that way. But the church slowly lost its influence in the community in which it was placed. Just like here, right now, this church has a great influence in the community. We have visitors and we have people coming here every week checking us out and seeing what's going on. Because God is bringing them here. But remember, it's God who brings them here. If God sees that in his church he is no longer the head and that they've kicked him outside the church and he's no longer the center, do you think God is going to lead people to that church? No. Just like I've always wanted to be part of a church, and fortunately I have been a couple places just like this one where I, I would not hesitate at all to invite somebody who did not know the Lord to come to this church. But I've also been in churches where after sitting through those services or being there for a while, I would have not been comfortable inviting anybody that did not know God to that church. In fact, I wouldn't even be comfortable inviting another Christian to that church because Jesus Christ was not the center of that ministry. 
And because he was no longer the center, that ministry started to go downhill. And even though the church may physically exist, there may be a building still there, there may be a pastor still there, there may be people meeting there, they're not making the impact in their community like they could if they would just reinvite Jesus back in to the very center of all they're doing and say, Jesus, you're the head of our church. Take it away. We're going to keep our hands out of it and you're the Lord, not us type of thing. All right. That's it for me for a couple minutes. Sorry, I just get really passionate about that. Qua- comments, questions. You'll notice in verse 19, another great principle. And that is that Jesus reminds all of us that when he disciplines us, just like he did the church here at Laodicea, it's because he loves us. Because he loves us. He only disciplines his children. He doesn't discipline those who aren't his children. He disciplines his children. Okay, because he loves us. Just like, to me, a good parent is going to discipline our children because we love them, not because we don't, you see. And that's what Jesus reminds them of here. So he says, so be earnest and repent. In other words, the Laodiceans could no longer remain churchgoers. Oh, they were going to church every week, but they were not God chasers. They were no longer chasing after a relationship with God. They were just going to church and going through the motions and doing everything within that church in their own power, in their own intellect, in their own strength. And they had kicked Jesus out of the church and he's knocking at the church saying, well, somebody let me back in. Yes. So why not discipline them sooner? Why let them get to the abyss ready to fall over the cliff like so many little lemmings, then come up and be ready to spank them? Why not spank them earlier? I can't totally answer that, but I, I will answer that this way. I think he probably did. I, I think that this was probably at the end. Okay. But I will say this too. Remember that God doesn't... God wants us to learn to obey and be sensitive to the promptings of his spirit rather than to have some kind of great earthquake experience that wakes us up all the time. Because actually, if we learn to walk by the Spirit, we're going to be much stronger than if God would always be back there cracking this. How how I would illustrate it is this way. It's like when my children learned how to ride a bike. Okay? it's, It's much better for them to get to a point where we can take the training wheels off And where I don't even have to steady the bike anymore and where they can start wobbling a little bit on their own. That's walking in the spirit. If God had to, you know, every time, you know, he wanted us to go a certain direction, he had to do something drastic. What he'd be doing in essence is grabbing a hold of the bike again. And God is saying, you're only going to be such a good bike rider if I've got to keep holding on to the bike. The only way you're going to really be a great bike rider is if you learn to ride that bike yourself. Now, again, to contract under the control of the Holy Spirit. Okay. And that's where Christians have to learn. You know, they'll say things. Well, how come God does things this way in the New Testament? He does because in the New Testament, He wants us to be stronger than they were in the Old Testament. 
you know, they didn't have the whole Bible. They didn't have the Holy Spirit permanently dwelling in them. He wants us to be able to ride bikes on our own with the Holy Spirit guiding and directing us because we're going to be much stronger by learning to do it that way than to have him always there steadying the bike behind us. And, and that's, I think, what he's trying to do here. Probably he had given many messages early on to this church through his word, through the pastor at one time, through the Holy Spirit, saying, don't, don't get lifted up in pride. You're, you're, you're starting to go the pride way. You're starting to become self-sufficient. And they just turned it off. And the danger of that is, and let, let's bring this up at this time, let's remember something. Every time we hear a message from God and we don't apply it to our life, we become a little bit harder. That's why it's very dangerous, actually, to come to a church that speaks the Bible all the time and to sit under the Word and not to apply it because we can become very calloused to it, you see. We, we can sort of build up that, eh, you know, Bless me, I dare you, type attitude. You know, I've heard it before, and eh, you know what? It it just doesn't do anything anymore. And that's why, too, I've always said to people, the best way you can remember what the pastor's message was from week to week is to put it into practice in your life. Then you have no problem remembering what he spoke on. It, the people who, you know, the the following week, if you ask, well, what did Pastor Lynn speak on last week? Well, I don't know. I can't remember. But if you put it into practice, it becomes part of your life and it's very easy to remember. And that's why applying what we learn is really the key step. It's not just knowing what we're supposed to do, but it's putting it into practice. It's becoming that hot and cold Christian, that, that spiritually refreshing, spiritually healing Christian. It's, it's becoming that Christian who is willing to push themselves a little bit. It's becoming that person who's not... Who, who knows the dangers of pride and self-sufficiency and, and knows we've got to be careful of that and, and how Jesus cannot become the center of all that we do and how susceptible we are to that. It, it's applying all those things on a daily basis that really makes the message come alive. And that's a, that's a great thought, great point. Yeah, Kate. Um, Mike said that they were famous too for the textiles. Was that the significance of telling them to wear white? Were they being prideful about the Yes, exactly. That's another thing. They they were they had gold. They had they, they had a great textile industry. They had this medical school with the eye salve. I mean, like I said, this city had everything going for it but water. Now, what's weird about that is you and I, where we live today, we know you could have everything, but if you don't have water out here, you're yeah. cooked. You know, uh, there's some places where it doesn't matter what you have, you better have some water. And which is really, I mean, let's face it, water is really the essential to life. Yep which is sort of interesting that the one thing they really needed, they didn't have, and the one thing that they really had, Jesus at one time, they sort of kicked him out and he was outside the church. Um, so anyway, uh, and the other thing I wanted to point out in verse 20 is this. You'll notice that ultimately the ultimate goal of Jesus is not to get inside of the church for any other reason than to have an intimate relationship and fellowship with those inside the church. That's why he uses the concept of sharing a meal together. In those days, to share a meal with somebody was a way you invited somebody into your home. 
and you opened up your home and you shared a meal with them, that that was a bonding thing. That was there was there was something deeper than the surface there. And that's why I think Jesus uses that in this context. He's saying, I don't want to just come again and, and just have this surface relationship with you. My goal in knowing you and you knowing me is so that we might have this deep, abiding, intimate relationship so that we can share all of life and everything about life together. God wants to be a part of every part of our life. There's nothing too stupid to pray about. There's nothing too too small to take to God. God loves everything about us. He wants to know everything about us as far as us sharing it with him. You know, the bottom line is God wants to have more of a relationship with us than we want to with him most of the time. I mean, that's that's just it. That's the truth. And you know what's weird about it? He's the God of the universe. You would think, okay, he's got more important things to do than to care about little old me. But you know what? Not for him. He wants that relationship with me more than anything else. And he wants it to be as deep and as intimate as it can possibly be. And the hindrance to that is never him. It's always me. I don't want to be as close to him as he wants to be as close to me. Now, let's just parallel that a minute. How frustrating has that been in our life where maybe we've had a friend that we so wanted to be closer to than what they wanted to be for us? And boy, that was frustrating. You know, I, I, I want to be so much more with you than what you want to be with me. And you know what? The next time you come across a relationship like that, remember how frustrating it is for God whenever he's up there saying, I want to spend time with you, but you just don't have any time for me. You know, I'm the last person in your schedule, and you just never seem like you want to spend time with me. And how frustrating that would be for him, because he's the Lord of glory. And yet, the most important thing he could ever do in his day is to spend time with you and I. While he's holding the whole universe together, (laughs) he wants to spend time with you and I. Now, here's also, i got to say this before I wrap this up tonight. You want to talk about amazing grace. Notice that the very people that he's already warned that you're about ready to get spit out of my mouth, he now makes this invitation to. That I will grant the one who conquers permission to sit with me on my throne, just as I too conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Oh my golly. Jesus is saying to us, not only does he want a relationship with me, an intimate relationship with me, but he's he's going to allow me to rule and reign with him on his throne. It's his throne. Yeah, but he wants us to be a part of it. And he says, I want you to sit with me on my throne. And I truly believe this, folks, that every person in here who knows the Lord Jesus Christ is their Savior. And remember, I believe that's who the conqueror is. Paul said we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. John says in 1 John, who is he who overcomes or conquers the world? Nike, Greek, he who believes that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus is saying to us that one day 
every person in here who knows him in a personal way is going to sit with him on his throne. That's something to look forward to. And that is an amazing manifestation of the grace of God. And then he ends with this. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All men have ears, but not all hear his voice. All men have ears, but not all hear his voice. And going back to even the concept of blindness, Jesus even said in his day, there are a lot of people who are physically blind in this world, but they can see more than what some of you can see. Because they have an insight spiritually that some of you don't have. It's not whether we can physically see or not. It's whether we can spiritually see. And Jesus wants to provide us with that spiritual sight that only comes from Him. And one of the primary purposes of us having good spiritual sight is so we can see where we are with Him. And so we don't become like the Laodiceans and others who were totally oblivious to where they were in their relationship with God. They thought they were fully clothed, and Jesus said, no, you're naked. They thought they could see 20-20 vision, and Jesus says, no, you're blind. They thought they had all this great treasure, and Jesus says, you don't have any treasure at all because you haven't. You haven't gotten the true treasure that you need. And so, one of the great purposes for good spiritual sight is so that we may see ourselves as God sees us. Good and bad. Good and bad. Because for many, you struggle with the fact that, well, you know, I'm a nobody and God doesn't love me and yada, 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 yada. And you've got to see yourself the way God sees you. He values you. He loved you enough to die for you. He loves you enough to live for you. He wants to have this kind of a relationship with you. He wants you to sit on his throne with him one day. So stop hanging your head and having your lip hit the floor. You need to see yourself the way Jesus sees you. Okay? In a positive way. But you you and I also need to see ourselves the way God sees us as far as those things in our life that are displeasing to Him and that are keeping us from being what we could be for Him that we may be blind to because we've not allowed Jesus to open up our eyes and say, God, point out these areas in my life that need some attention so that I can become all that you created me to be and all that I want to be for you so that I can be spiritually hot and spiritually cold and make the maximum impact in this world that I can possibly make. Hey, like I said, I've been reminded of that this week. I could leave here tonight at 44 years of age and I could have some terrible accident on my way home and could be gone. But you know what? I want the 44 years that I had to be everything that I could make them because God only gives us one life. You know, he only gives us one life, and I want my one life to count as absolutely much as it possibly can for him, for however long he has me here. And remember something, for those of you that may be discouraged by saying, well, I didn't get started till late. Okay, God knows that. 
But remember something. The important thing as far as God in the Bible is concerned, and I've said this before, is not how we start. It's what? It's how we finish. It's how we finish the race that's the most important. Not how we started the race. So just commit yourself to finishing well. Commit yourself to finishing well. Comments or anything before we wrap it up tonight? Let me just say, guys, I was a little hesitant to tackle Revelation, only because I consider myself, you know, still, I'll just tell you this, I've studied the Bible for 30 years, and I'm to the point where the more I study it, the more I realize I don't know. (laughs) And so, you know, again, I struggle sometimes with feeling very inadequate to tackle things like we're tackling here, but thank you all for your patience and for your encouragement and for your attendance and for your hunger for God and for his word because you truly, these first, what, seven or eight weeks we've had here in our study of Revelation have just been awesome. And I can't wait to pick it back up in in a couple of weeks on the 28th of March, on Tuesday the 28th, and begin to dive in. I promise you this. Well, I shouldn't promise you this because the rapture could happen. But, or I guess something could happen to me. But yeah, that would be cool. But we will finish the book of Revelation this semester. We will get through the entire book by the end of May when we close everything out because we'll be able to pick it up a little bit quicker beginning in chapter 4 than what we have up to this point. All right? So hang in there with me. Get somebody to come with you, invite a friend with you on the 28th. I'd love to see this room packed out for the rest of the semester. I think it would be great. But again, thank you guys. You are awesome. You are great. Let's close in prayer and I'll let you go home tonight. Father, we thank you again for your word and not just for your written word, but for the living word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, more than anything else, as we are reminded in the book of Revelation, we want you to be high and lifted up. We want you to be at the very center of all that we do. We want you to be glorified and and, and for us to be reminded that you are the glorified Christ, the one who originated creation, the one who sustains this creation, the one who gives us the very breath that we breathe every second in order to keep us going. Father, you are our all in all. And Father, I pray tonight that through this message to Laodicea that all of us have been challenged to step it up in our relationship with you and not to take you for granted as much as we have and and to allow you to be more a part of our life than what we have in the past and to maybe just give it that little bit more of a push to make the progress that we know we can make if we just push ourselves just a, just a little bit more. Father, thank you because we know that that push is going to come from you. It's not going to come from us. The strength to keep pushing is going to come from you. So Father, give us what we need and Lord, we'll give you all the glory and honor for it. For Lord, as you use our lives to make a difference in the people that we come in contact with, there's nothing that is more exciting more exhilarating, more fulfilling than when we see you use our lives to impact eternity and to know that our life, the short life that you give us to live here on this earth is meaning much more than just this life. There's there's so much more to it. And Father, we want to be so much a part of something so much bigger than ourselves. 
And thank you for allowing us to be a part of that. And thank you for the promises you give us that one day we're going to sit on that throne with you and, and, and we're going to see you face to face. And Father, I, I just can't wait for that day. Lord, go with us. Take us all home safely. Bring us back in a couple of weeks, Lord, refreshed and just ready to go. Once again, in the book of Revelation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. You're great. Thank you. Take care.